are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I'm Brendan, still here with... Skylar. Skylar. She's doing her thing. Yeah, it's good to see you. Yeah, you too. <laughs> it's been the highlight of your week. Oh boy, do I say another basketball example? Basketball... <laughs> Lakers Warriors on Tuesday. I don't know. It's pretty good. Um, Still haven't been watching any. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of good reading. Some hard reading. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's the same answer for me. Skyler's every week. life. It is basketball and reading. <laughs> this time of year, basketball. Most of the time, I guess, just reading. I don't know. Yep. That's good. What about you? Ah, uh, lots of highlights. Uh, I'll give you one. Yeah. There's a, I got a video on my phone today. So, uh, we live in the middle of Provo, like the middle of it, the middle of the city, you know, (laughs) but uh, I'm not going to give out my address so that, uh, nobody gets in trouble. (laughs) But, uh, one of our neighbors has a farm outside of town and every once in a while they'll bring their animals to their house for whatever reasons. I mean, sometimes it'd be like they need some extra nursing or care or something like that. So we'll just randomly, you know, cross the fence because our backyards butt up next to one another, have like a cow or like a horse, you know? So today there's baby goats, these little Ah. baby goats. And uh, our neighbor put like these little clothes on them and, my wife put a video up on our little, you know, family thing of my kids playing with these goats, and uh, yeah, it's it's pretty epic here. Let me let me see if You're I can pull it up. I'm right gonna now. pull it up. You're gonna yeah. <laughs> let's get a you know, it's it's really popular these days. People are doing these reaction videos. Let's get a reaction from uh, from Skyler on this one. On the video, okay, okay, here we go. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Those are so cute. <laughs> Aren't those the cutest little goats? Yes. They're like bouncing around the yard. Yeah. So there's two of them yep. running around yep. each other. Yep. And what is that? They're just on their head. Just a little bow. Nice little <sighs> nice little bow. <laughs> it's just a beautiful video. Isn't that great? Happy yeah. children, happy goats. Totally. That's my highlight. Doesn't a, have to be anything crazy. It's at a little house on the prairie. Just a little house yeah. in Provo. That's right. Yeah. The, uh, we're homesteaders, if you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Not at all. What's What's the update on the tree in the yard? Uh, I can't remember what yeah, I talked about. Trying to cut, plant cut. a tree. Or oh something. yeah, I still need to plant that. Yeah, we we haven't bought the tree yet. Okay. Yeah, we we're working right now on getting our raised garden beds. That's another okay. Utah cultural thing. Definitely, like is. everybody is really into gardening out here. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, Paul says all things to all people. So we tried to grow a garden when we lived in Texas and never succeeded. But you know, I'm confident this is our year. We've yeah, got the, got the raised beds. We had mm-hmm. uh, we had the dirt dropped off with all the poop in it, <laughs> yeah. and. My sons were trying to play in it. Mm-hmm. You know, is it true do. that coffee grounds are good for soil? That's what I hear. Yeah, yeah I need to start saving them, compost yeah. those things. Yeah, get compost going. 
And uh, yeah, that's that's been about it. So been pr- been pretty good that, that watching my great. kids play baby goats. Yes, so that's wow, yeah, that's wonderful. Living made my day. Living the life. Living the day. life. <laughs> it's funny because you know we uh, we live in Utah, and you know when people see my wife, they're like convinced we're a Mormon family because we have we have five kids. Mm-hmm. And my wife, you know, she, you know, looks apart. And, uh, <laughs> and it's just funny because, like, what do you mean by that? Then, then yeah, I don't know. <laughs> she got five kids crawling around her legs. And right, just, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, uh, when I show up, though, people seem really shocked. They're just like, whoa, not so Mormon, are you, after all? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And they find out it's a Baptist pastor. They smell the coffee wafting from our house. <laughs> <laughs> we had a neighbor who like emailed or no emailed. <laughs> emailed. No, we had a neighbor who like, te- texted Julie to make sure she's okay because she saw smoke coming out of her house. And Julie had to text her and be like, No, that's just my husband's coffee roaster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, your coffee is so good. It, it, if people are on the fence. About whether they should come visit yeah. BC Provo. Well, do I have permission to just like? My coffee is not the coffee that's served on a weekly basis here. So, right. It's, but, you know, you know, it might be. You need worth. to come and have a one on one with me. You know, yep. do some hangout. It's such good coffee. Talk, talk some theology and, mm-hmm. you know, some Bob Ink and coffee. <laughs> Uh, it's not a requirement you know if you're still lds you can come hang out and wa- watch me drink coffee i guess i don't know <laughs> there's delicious tea as well yeah. tea options yeah. in your office herbal herbal drinks hot herbs yeah which is allowed yes for lds people yeah you can of course both used herbs. to be allowed yeah yeah hot yeah. drinks was technically hot toddies yeah yeah which is why, I mean, you read Wilford Woodruff's Journal, for example, yeah. or John Taylor. Typically, they're like, yep, got up in the morning, had my coffee. Yeah. Yeah, most people don't know that history. Not, not anymore. No, that is definitely not the case anymore. <laughs> not yet, anyways. All right, well, let's get into it here. So, we are looking at the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for May 8th to the 14th. And the passages that are listed here are Matthew 19, 19 to 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And the curriculum in particular, um, it's primarily focusing on Matthew 19, Matthew 20, a little bit on, uh, yeah, Matthew, a little bit on Mark 10. Mark 10 is brought in just because it, you know, shares the story in common with Matthew 19, and then you've got Luke 18 as well. We're primarily going to be looking at Matthew 19 and Matthew 20 today, Um, and, you know, Mark as well with that particular story. So, um, yeah, so let me just walk us through this as normal a little bit here. Uh, The subtitle for the entire lesson is What Lack I Yet?, and uh, got the typical, you know, encouragement to uh, the the leader of the class. Think about, you know, how you can get people to share what they learned or felt during their own study. And then it gets down to the teach doctrine. The first subsection is Matthew nineteen three to nine. Which, if you're unfamiliar, that is 
Jesus teaching on divorce. When uh, Jesus finished teaching some various things, Pharisees came up to him and tested him. So they're they're putting him to the test, asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answers, have you not read uh, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fat and so on and so forth. So we'll, we'll get into the details of that text a little bit later on, but that's Jesus basically addressing the Pharisees, trying to trap him in this uh, debate that was common in that, in that day and Jesus responding. So the subtitle for the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum for that passage is this, Marriage Between a Man and a woman is essential to God's eternal plan. And I'm just going to read this whole thing, and we'll come back to it. But it says, Increasingly, the world's views on marriage diverge from eternal truth. To help your class learn about God's view on marriage, you might invite them to read Matthew 19, 3-9 and list on the board the truths they find regarding marriage. They could also list additional truths they find from the following, and there they list Genesis 1, 1 Corinthians 11, the Doctrine and Covenants, and Moses, and then the question, how are these truths reinforced in the family, a proclamation of the world? So that's uh, turning everyone's attention to the family proclamation, which we'll get into that here in a little bit, but... Yeah, I I just would say on a positive note, before we start breaking that down, really, um, because I'm going to finish highlighting the other sections before we come back to this, on a positive note, we would agree that marriages between a man and a woman, uh, we would begin to differ on what we mean when, of course, it says is essential to God's eternal plan. Uh, what what is meant by that exactly from an LDS perspective, and so we'll we'll get into that. All right, and then the next subsection is covering Matthew twenty one to sixteen, which is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Uh, if you're not familiar with that one, that's the parable where there is a master and he goes out and hires these people at six a.m. in the morning and says, "Hey, I'll pay you a day's wages. I'll pay good wages if you come and work in the vineyard." They come and work, and then the master hires people throughout the day, and at the end of the day when everybody turns in to collect their wages, all of them get paid the exact same amount, even though some of them only worked for like an hour, and others have been working since 6 a.m. And so the ones who had been working since 6 a.m., of course, get upset and start complaining to the master, and the master, of course, uh, talks about, you know, am am I not able to do with my money what... I choose. I'm being just to you. I'm paying you what I said I would pay. I'm paying you a good's day wages. I can be generous to others if I so choose. And so the subtitle for that in the LDS curriculum is everyone can receive the blessing of eternal life no matter when they receive the gospel. So we'll discuss that a little bit as well, but uh, they do reference a uh, message by uh, Jeffrey Holland, the laborers in the vineyard, um, and, you know, t- typical, you know, as we see there, lots of just references to these apostles' talks and whatnot. But, yeah, so the next subsection is covering Matthew nineteen sixteen to 22 and Mark 10, 17 to 21. And that is the parable or the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man who comes up to uh, talk to Jesus and, of course, uh, asks, what, what do I need to do in order to gain eternal life? And uh, what good deed, right, do I even need to do in order to gain eternal life? And Jesus, you know, challenges him on the law, 
The man thinks that he's obeyed all of these things. Jesus says, well, then go sell all that you have and uh, give it to the poor. Come follow me. And the man, of course, leaves sad because he was rich and had great possessions. And so the subtitle there is the Savior will guide us closer to him as as we ask him for help. And uh, yeah, so the the main thing that's highlighted there is uh, this line, class members may be willing to share experiences in which they asked, what lack I yet, and received a personalized prompting to improve, to help class members who might become discouraged. By focusing on what they lack, you could share the statement and the additional resources. And here's the statement and the additional resources. It's from Elder Todd Christofferson. He taught this. If we sincerely ask, what lack I yet, God will not leave us to guess, but in love, he will answer for the sake of our happiness, and he will give us hope. If you go and ask God, what do you lack yet? He'll let you know all the things that you lack yet, because he's just that nice that he's going to tell you how much of a failure you still are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, personalized I know that's very direct advice. But yeah, personalized advice. Yeah, so we'll talk about how that's a, a definite misunderstanding of that passage. And then the last one, which we've mentioned in passing and, and covered before on the pod, so we probably won't talk about this one a whole lot, is from Luke 18, 9 to 14. And that's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, of course, you know, the Pharisee thinking that he's all that and is has all this righteousness. The tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, uh, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And G- Jesus says, I tell you, the man who... The, the tax collector went to his house justified rather than the other who thinks himself righteous. So, um, yeah, so we, we won't cover that one a whole lot. Okay, let's go back to Matthew 19, 3 to 9. Uh, this is a well-known passage, and this is primarily a passage that's focused on in the evangelical Christian church when we're talking about divorce and remarriage. And... There's a lot of debate around this passage as far as when a person is permitted, if a person is ever permitted to divorce, and if a person is to divorce, then under what circumstances could they get remarried if they are even allowed to remarry? So this is a really uh, kind of a debated topic within evangelical Christianity, but that's not really the direction that the LDS church has taken when they're talking through this passage in particular. There is some talk about that, but mostly it's covering the uh, eternal importance of marriage uh, from an LDS perspective. So, okay, here's what's going on in the story itself, and then I'm going to kick it over to you, Skylar, after we cover the basics here. Uh, Jesus finished these sayings. He went to Galilee, entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him. He healed them there. The Pharisees came up to him. They tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning has made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such a case, 
if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs, by the way, they don't go all the way to this passage, do they? For no, there are eunuchs, yeah, for there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive this. That's really uh, important to put that eunuchs uh, passage in there because right. it does very much contradict the LDS understanding of just how important marriage is. And mm-hmm. we've talked about this on the podcast already, yeah. but we've got some new, fresh, you know, other things that we can cover as you've been reading and studying, Skyler. So I'm just going to turn it over to you to go ahead and make some comments on on some of the LDS perspective on this some more. Okay. Well, to cover the manual just directly first, then I want to I want to give a little bit of a history lesson, maybe lay out uh, a mental map for the listeners on this to help them kind of get some of the chronology here. But uh, as you said, the underneath Matthew nineteen three to nine, which once again they stop at verse nine, marriage between a man, so singular, and a woman is essential to God's eternal plan. Essential which if you didn't stop at verse 9, you'd see that's obviously not the case. Right? Yeah. There are eunuchs. Who, there, there are those who even made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, right? Yep. So uh, celibate singleness has always been an option in Christian morality if we're listening to, our, to Jesus Christ here. Yeah. God's eternal plan, once again, um, et- eternality is not an attribute, an incommunicable attribute of God, Right, um, uh, it for for them. Th- this is how reality is, so to speak. And God became God in part by marriage. So that's why notice the world's views on marriage diverge from eternal truth. But do we believe that marriage existed eternally? No, we believe God created male female, meaning there's a beginning to that. Yep. And so marriage is a created thing. It's not an eternal thing. In the seminary manual, they they even say, hey, bring um, underneath the learning activities, they say marriage is part of God's plan. And they, they say, bring a bicycle wheel and um, or any object with a center that is essential to its function. And what would happen to the bicycle wheel if the hub were removed? And then it says, read the first paragraph of the family proclamation of the world, looking for what is central to Heavenly Father's plan of salvation. Yeah. This is the Galatian heresy, and that's the most orthodox part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Is marriage evil? No. Plan of salvation. It's essential to the plan of salvation. Yeah. By the way, Galatian heresy just meaning yeah. adding to the gospel. Yes. Yep. In the case of Galatian circumcision. Yep. That's right. So, um, and uh, so, okay. I want to point out the irony that in the section where they say marriage between a man and a woman is essential to God's eternal plan, they cite Doctrine and Covenants 132. We're going to come back to that, but that is the section pressuring Emma to accept polygamy, and that's where polygamy is revealed in their scriptures. Uh And um, (laughs) and then to say, how are the truths reinforced in the family proclamation of the world? That's a little weird, right? So polygamy, monogamy. Well, I want to do... um, a little bit of a backdrop, and then to the to this whole issue of of polygamy. 
So, um, this is debated when it started, when it was revealed, when Joseph Smith started. Um, but if Fanny Alger was Joseph Smith's first wife, um, of course, Oliver Cowdery just thought it was, uh, was an affair. She was 14. Um, but if that was his first wife, then polygamy started in Kirtland, Kirtland, Ohio, in the mid-1830s. Yep. Okay. Um, now, DNC 132, revealing polygamy as an essential doctrine of the church, uh, they say that that was um, revealed July 12th, 1843. Okay. Though it was not added into the LDS Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. So keep in mind this, um, even to use a non-controversial LDS source here, it's a revelation addressing subjects of eternal and plural marriage and the principles upon which marriages were to be performed in the church. And they'll say the concept of plural marriage appears to have its birth in Kirtland, Ohio, right? And the principle of eternal marriage, de- marriage developed at Nauvoo. Yeah. So the, the kind of underpinning theologically for it. Yep. What's that later. source? There? This is uh, the Revelations of the Prophet Joseph Smith, Lyndon W. Cook. Yeah. This is a, you know, non-controversial source. Yep. And it, it's interesting because it, when it was uh, copied down, uh, at this point, of course, Emma had found Joseph Smith probably having an affair with a young woman who lived with them. Um, so he's trying to get her in on it. And so he's using his priesthood to basically pressure her into accepting it. And this um, revelation was one of the means used. This revelation was copied. There were two copies of it. DNC 132, as we have it today, um, was copied from one of them, uh, the Kingsbury copy. Um, The other copy, which might have been more original, this is debated, was literally burned by Emma. And you got to keep in mind when Brigham left with the church to to what is now Salt Lake, um, a lot of Mormons stayed behind, became the RLDS Church, and of course they weren't polygamy practicers, <laughs> right? So there's there's a lot here, but here here's another interesting um, kind of backdrop is that the rumors of polygamy were already following uh, Mormon leaders and the Mormon community. And so there actually used to be a section in the DNC, DNC 101 at the time, that was um, in the 1835 edition. It was section 101 in 1835, the DNC defining marriage. And let me just read a section here. This is in section four. Keep in mind, this was considered, quote unquote, scripture from 1835 to 1876. Inasmuch as this Church of Christ has been reproached with the crime of fornication and polygamy, we declare that we believe that one man should have one wife and one woman, but one husband, except in case of death, when either is at liberty to marry again. So that was in their scriptures, even while they're practicing this secretly. That's key to get. So you And you have this reprinted um, several times. So once in 1850, John Taylor was uh, John Taylor was an LDS apostle who eventually became the third president of the church. He was confronted about polygamy, and he said in a speech, "You know, we are accused here of polygamy and other just horrible things. Let me read you our views on chastity and marriage." And reads this section 
And he had at least six wives at the time. Yeah. So they are publicly lying yep. about their practice. Uh, Smith started the pattern, and they did. In 1852 is when Brigham Young publicly proclaims it, and they start publicly teaching it. And then more of the Mormon population became practice practitioners of this doctrine. And, of course, that's tied up into their temple at the time as well. So uh, why all this? I just want to kind of lay out some of this, right? So you have 1835, this section forbidding polygamy. And then you have several editions. 18, so supposedly DNC 132 is revealed in 1843, but it's not part of the DNC until 1876. So you have printings, for example, in 1854, 1866, 1869, 1876. All of a sudden, DNC 101 disappears. In DNC 132, from one of the copies, one of the copies Emma didn't burn, is put into um, the DNC, justifying polygamy and requiring it. That's how it was understood. And it's, so if you see um, you see the irony there, um, one other example, historical example of this, um, there's a gospel topics essay that the LDS Church officially published called A Plural Marriage in Kirtland and Nauvoo, um, that I'm going to, that, that says, you know, admits to a lot of these issues. Of course, they got to make Fanny Alger, you know, two weeks shy of 15 or whatever. Right. Uh, yeah. His first wife, because they can't say he's committing adultery. He would have been what, like um, 28, 30, uh, I mean, good, somewhere around there. Yeah. Born 18. Yeah. Somewhere in there. And he says, this is in 1844. He said, what it is, what a thing it is for a man to be accused of committing adultery and having seven wives when I can only find one. So this yeah. is in Nauvoo, um, right? City. He he's he might even be running for president at this right. point, right? And he's saying, oh, I'm accused of having seven wives. I can only find one. I'm the same man and as innocent as I was 14 years ago. I can prove them all perjurers. Well, in the Gospel Topics essay, uh, even the LDS Church will say between 30 and 40 wives. Uh-huh. At the time he said this. Yeah. So see this pattern of deception. Yep. And the only way they can justify it is this doctrine of lying for the Lord, which I brought up in a frustrated way. But you just have to keep this in mind, especially with true Mormon believers. Yeah. They think they are more spiritually advanced or progressed than you, and therefore they have the right to hide some of the truth from you because you need milk before meat. Mm-hmm. And of course, I don't think it's milk. I think it's poison. Yeah. So it creates this two-tier church, uh, a public face and a private face. And of course... Uh, is it as bad as it used to be today in the LDS Church? No, but it's yeah. still there. Yeah, it's still there, and I want to show that Family Proclamation of the World kind of is an example of this. Yeah. Uh, so, so I mean, I mean, basically, the the way that they would justify Smith and Taylor, and, you know, these other guys would be just to say, well, you know, they they uh, had that revealed to them, but they weren't able to you know, go public with it just yet. Exactly. So, you know, because yep. the church wasn't ready for that. Yeah, it's right. too sacred or secret. You got to yeah. keep it secret because it's so sacred kind of a thing. Yep. Yeah, and um, now in 1890, and we've mentioned this several times, especially in the footnote or the, the show notes, um, they're thinking Jesus is coming back. And there's a lot of pressure from the federal government. So you have Brigham Young leaving with the church to what is now Salt Lake, Utah, Utah being bigger geographically then. It was Mexico. On the way over, the Mexican-American War occurs where the U.S. government basically just stills on the land, whatever. And now they're under the federal government's jurisdiction directly. 
So now instead of one of the states, they're under the federal jurisdiction. Yeah. And um, this is key uh, to keep in mind with some of the debates on polygamy. But there is so much pressure. We're going to come back to some of that pressure because it's it's going to tie into the family proclamation the world debates. But in uh, 1890, you have this kind of official like manifesto from Wilfred Woodruff. And it was canonized. Uh, like If you have a quad, you'll see it in the back of the DNC. And, um, but you got to keep in mind, you know, several general authorities kept taking wives even after. They thought, we just got to alleviate the pressure enough that the federal government will stop, and then we'll just be careful. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, they still get caught in 1904 or thereabouts. Literally, the president of the church at the time, who was Hiram Smith's son, so Joseph Smith's nephew, um, gets called before a Senate committee um, and called out for the continuing practice of polygamy, at least among the elite. Um, it's they were called the Reed Smoot hearings. If you can imagine that a president of the LDS Church being drilled by a Senate committee who had done their homework on Mormonism, and um, that's when they issue a manifesto that is not in the Quad, but it's a second one in church history where they say we mean it this time, and there became uh, a lot of politicking, a lot of um, selective excommunications at that point. At that point, they're saying enough is enough, kind of a thing. Oh. Now, uh, when G- Gordon B. Hinckley was on Larry King Live, he said that it's not doctrinal. But it was not ever <laughs> revoked doctrinally. If you read it, yeah. it's not. It's that we can't practice it right now. Right. Like we're, <laughs> and a lot of it was uh, blamed on the persecution. Um, and a lot of it was also blamed on the, how faithful the members were. They were kind of gaslit into saying, if you were only righteous enough, God would come to our aid so we could continue to practice it. Mm-hmm. And it, even now, there are some LDS that will admit that they think it will be reinstituted in the future at some point, maybe when Jesus comes back or whatever, but it's still there. And you've yeah. got to keep in mind, in the LDS temple today, um, men can be sealed to more than one woman, not, not at the same time, at least not publicly, yeah. not in a way that we know. Um, but let's say um, your wife dies, say, in 2005, Russell Nelson, and you remarry Wendy Watson, and you're sealed to her. It's interesting to me that they did not go out of their way to say sealed only for time yeah, and not for eternity, which, so I don't know for sure. Right. But I, I, I don't know. If you wanted yeah. to, you know, uh, clear the air, you would make it clear. Well, I'm just marrying her for time. No, I think I, my suspicion is Nelson and Oaks are sealed to more than one woman even today. So if they say we don't practice it anymore, okay, but do you believe it? If you say you don't believe it anymore, well, why do you still practice it? Yeah. Just in your temple. You would think the temple, the most sacred spot in Mormonism, would be the most emblematic mm-hmm. of their beliefs. So that's why I've said it several times. Now, we can go back a bit. Um. We So, I, I want to point out the irony that during this whole public polygamy period, and there's a lot of interesting things, like there were even public debates with LDS apostles, with people uh, like a Presbyterian minister, I think at Parley Pratt, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it was Orson Pratt, one of the Pratts, did public debates on polygamy, whether it was biblical, whether it was, I mean, very yeah. interesting time. Yeah. Um, I mean, Brigham Young, he, I mean, he, they, they, they were not hiding it all, really, you know. Brigham Young said, talk about polygamy. There is no philosopher on the face of the earth 
but will admit that such a system properly carried out according to the order of heaven is far superior to monogamy for the raising of healthy, robust children. That's in the Journal of Discourses. During this period, it is not like they're saying, well, monogamy is the milk, and then, you know, for the extra spiritual people, you get polygamy. In fact, the one-wife system was condemned uh, from the pulpit in general conference by the church leaders for decades. Brigham Young, Orson Pratt, Hebrew C. Kimball, George A. Smith, George Q. Cannon, all of these are huge names during this period, big names, as big as Nelson and Oaks are today, right? Um, are all saying things like monogamy or restrictions by law to one wife is no part of the economy of heaven among men. Or, you know, they'll say it's a Christian conspiracy. <laughs> uh, several, you know, or hinted that. Uh, they'll say things like, this was an official Mormon church paper. The one wife system not only degenerates the human family, both physically and intellectually, but it is entirely incompatible with philosophical notions of immortality. They'll say it'll purify society if society would embrace polygamy. They are evangelizing based on this. That's what. Yeah. I, that's the point I'm trying to make, right? Uh, they'll say the one-wife system um, did not originate in the Christian church, but was adopted from the practice of the Roman nation, of the Roman priesthood, which is yeah. kind of funny if you think Roman priesthood is celibate, single, but okay. Yeah. Roman priesthood, they're very anti-Catholic in this period, very anti-Roman Catholic, and by them palmed upon the nations as originating in Christianity. See that? Yeah. So... In fact, Orson Pratt even said the law of monogamy or the monogamic system is the foundation for prostitution and evils and diseases and everything. So yeah. this is not uh, kind, yeah. let me put it that way. Yeah, I, I'm interested to know, I just think, I mean, statistically, it's pretty much a 50-50 split as far as how many people are born male versus how many people are born female. Right. right? Um, I know that Joseph Smith got in some heat for trying to be sealed to the wives of some of his leaders, right? Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if, I mean, the idea was share each other's wives or, you know, or if this was a practice that realistically was only going to be able to be practiced by some of the leaders. And I mean, because there just wouldn't have been enough women to go around unless, unless there was a greater death rate, I guess, of men during that period of time but i just i just even wonder the practicality and how that affected the actual practice of it you know right yeah that's a good question um i know it's a common myth by myth i mean lie uh falsehood um that it was based on there being um more women than men right and that has been disproven at this point it's just one of these canards that has been, oh, it was practical kind of an argument that has seeped into the culture and just won't go away. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, a practicality in, in terms of a man providing for all these women, of course, as we, in fact, we were talking right before this episode, I think it's nine or so. Uh, Todd Compton's in Sacred Loneliness goes into this. I think it's nine of the first 12 women Joseph Smith married were are simultaneously married to other men. Yeah. And, and some of them were consummated. Just read that book. This is not like, well, they just didn't act like it. Well, some of them thought they acted like it. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, we have a woman who told her daughter on her deathbed, you're, you're Joseph Smith's daughter. Now, wow. even if DNA doesn't bear that out, the point is she would have engaged in behavior with Smith yeah. <laughs> that made her think that. Yep. So, yeah. It, for me, it, the the... 
it's just so um, the history. I mean, it is there. It's right. still there, and that's what's so interesting about Gordon B. Hinckley saying it's not doctrinal. How is it not? When you're citing DNC 132 now, in the same paragraph where you say a man and a woman shows, I don't know, do they think low of the intelligence of their members? Are they dog whistling to some of their members? Like, it's, it's weird to me. Yeah. But I just want to make the point that politically, even today, not that that should be our emphasis on this pod, but politically even, the irony of Prop 8 in all of the, the politicization, a little bit of which we're going to get into in a second, from the group that was the first organized group that's still around today, like you, you had other groups that you say, oh, marriage is the problem with society, right? You had tons of utopianism at that time, right? Uh, there's a great book on that I'll put in the show notes. But um, they're still around today. But they were organizing and appealing in the courts. Even Lorenzo Snow, who was a brother-in-law of Joseph Smith. Um, I mean, we're talking presidents of the church who are in court cases trying to argue against the one-wife system. And then when that didn't work, uh, trying to find an exception to laws, generally applicable laws, based on religious freedom, based on the First Amendment. Right. And so I wanted to go kind of into that a little bit. Uh, now, some of this is a little inside baseball, Brendan. So uh, take my word for it that there are going to be listeners that will know what I'm talking about. Yep. I'm going to try and go as quickly as I can because I, I know I'm already taking a while here. But there's I'm going to focus just on one of these cases. It's such a key case in American history as well. It's Reynolds v. United States, 1878. Okay, George Reynolds was brought up on bigamy charges. And keep in mind, Utah's still a territory this time. So federal law still directly applies. And... Um, you had a law passed in 1862, in fact, it was signed by President Abraham Lincoln, uh, called the Moral Anti-Bigamy Act. Um, there were several of these laws, but this was one of the first. There is an irony with how much people here in Utah <laughs> love Abraham Lincoln. And there's an irony with just Republican politics generally that most people do not realize when the Republican Party was founded, it was in part an anti-Mormon political party. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of forgotten. But when you go into a Deseret book, you're going to see some Tim Ballard book. Yeah, uh, saying, oh, Joseph Smith and Abraham Lincoln for emancipation or whatever. But <laughs> the fact of the matter is, Lincoln uh, signed this bill that was clearly aimed in part, uh, in mostly, at Mormons. <clears throat> yeah, And so he's brought up a, uh, under this law, right? And his challenge, there's some technicalities we won't get into, but his challenge was basically that these laws are violating the First Amendment Free Exercise Clause. Um, and but by saying that polygamy is a religious practice. That's the question that the case is answering. I want to give a little bit more detail. So I, I went into Lincoln, who, who yeah, by the way, uh, was a Whig, and the, the remnants of the Whig Party became the Republican Party. Um, and even the conspiracy to murder Joseph Smith, that was a conspiracy. Uh, a lot of Whigs in that group. I just want to point that out. And Lincoln is from the same state. Kind of interesting. Um the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Morrison Waite. This is a nominee of Ulysses S. Grant. Remember Lincoln's general, so Republican. He was um, unanimous confirmation. This is a unanimous opinion, though I think Justice Fields uh, dissented on part, but not the relevant part. And basically, this unanimous decision is that Congress can legislate over moral issues, right? They can reach actions. What they did is they separated religious belief and action. This can be relevant here in a second. They, they, they separated, okay, you have your religious belief and then you have religious behavior. And the fact of the matter is 
that, in their opinion, that Congress, its legislative power can reach actions that are in violation of social duties and subversive of good order. And so the convictions upheld the constitutionality of this bill, and they basically say polygamy is immoral and harmful to society. And there's some quotes in there that would be pretty shocking if you want to read it uh, for today in terms of what the Supreme Court was willing to say. Uh, by the way, uh, for those who like U.S. history, this is also the first case uh, I, uh, that used the separation of church and state letter by Jefferson. Kind of weird uh, how they use it now and how it's used uh, today. But basically, they even said, look, you know, someone might have some sincerely held religious belief on human sacrifice, bride burning. We can't allow that. So, you know, this law isn't saying the Mormon church is illegal, but just because it reaches some of your behavior doesn't make it unconstitutional. Uh, those who I have a friend who's going to law school um, and a, another friend who graduated from it, they're going to see some of the irony that um, so many of the religious exemption cases from evangelicals today or, or Roman Catholic, whatever, Christians today, actually are arguing for against this kind of standard that neutrally applicable general laws should apply even when they reach behavior. But anyway, that's not the point today. But what I want to show is that this is the case. And once again, this isn't the only one. Who is arguing against traditional marriage in these cases? <laughs> it's, it's the Mormon church. And so they're a, a weird ally today, you know, in the last 20 years when it came to defending it. And not, uh, no joke, this case ruling against Brigham Young's secretary, who was also a general authority, not 12, but a general authority, they're literally asking for the courts to uphold Reynolds when they were the ones who wanted Reynolds decided the opposite way. Okay. Now that, that leads to the, the gay marriage debates, <clears throat> same sex marriage debates, the family proclamation, the world, it, uh, what is it? The most important thing I want to end on, but just some of the context for it. A lot of LDS people will, if you're just talking to them, they're going to see this document as having, being evidence of the general authorities um, getting revelation about what's coming. But the fact of the matter is, if you look into it, the, the debate over same-sex marriage was in Hawaii, and they were paying attention. They, that's, that's where it came from. Um, they, so there's a, a lot of politics going on, and then they, they write this proclamation and issue it, I think, in... Uh, um, the, the the women's portion of General Conference in 1995. See, I wrote that. I didn't write that down. It was, I've got it here, September 23rd, 1995. Sorry, it was at, at the General Relief Society meeting. Okay. And, um, of course, if you read it, um, which we'll read the first paragraph here in a minute, but it definitely calls for political action uh, uh, on this issue based on their theology, right? But, okay, um, but is it revelation? Is it canon? Um, in, in Mormon usage, what's a proclamation and what's its weight of authority, right? How does it differ from a manifesto, from Scripture, from, right? Is it revelation? And, um, you know, even when this came out, and there's been others like it, though. This is easily the one that's stuck the most in the popular mind. If you go to an LDS home, you'll often see this up in the home as a decoration. Yep. It's cited 
like Revelation, there's a lot of institutional weight behind this thing. But yet, there's still, at the same time, it's never been uh, submitted to the membership to accept by common consent. Um, and when pushed, uh, they apparently the church leadership is more comfortable with ambiguity than clarity on this. So, for example, um, it, to pick a glaring one, in the October 2010 General Conference, uh, President Boyd K. Packer of the Quorum of the Twelve gave a talk called Cleansing the Inner Vessel, in which he said this. Now, if you listen to the audio, this is what you hear. It qualifies according to the definition as a revelation, and uh, it would do well that members of the church to read and follow. That's, that's literally what you'll hear um, if you clean up the grammar a little bit. It qualifies according to definition as revelation, and it would do well to members of the church to read and follow. When the text of the talk, keep in mind, this is in the heat of all these political debates. When the text of the talk goes on to the website, they take that out. Wow. They take out the part that it's a revelation. They, they, they change it to, um, it's a guide that members of the church would do well uh, to read and follow. Mm -hmm. And when pressed on this, um, you know, <laughs> uh, Scott Trotter, who's the spokesman for the church, said President Packer has simply clarified his intent, though that, you know, why would he say it if that's not what he intended? And there's more context that we don't have time to go into. But my point is, isn't that bizarre that they will absolutely weaponize this thing politically? but not own it theologically. Yeah. Not own it theologically. And this is the thing. It's not canonized. It's not revelation, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and yet, if you push an LDS on it, I bet they would treat it as that. Yeah. They would treat it as like one of the few things in the recent memory that would be, what, equivalent to revelation, doctrinal. And this is why in the Michael God debates and whatever else, not to bring all this other stuff up, but this is, this is why it bugs me so much when they say, well, it was never officially doctrine. It was never, and they, they, they emphasize this process mm -hmm. because the fact of the matter is that process has rarely, if ever, actually been how LDS people sift through what is doctrinal or not. Yeah. They only do it selectively against things they don't like, and they'll, they'll not do it selectively against the things they do. And here's why it matters, is the left part, the left of the LDS church, they know this as well, yeah. and they're just waiting for it to be overturned and to allow same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. even in the church. Yeah. So, to go to the manual, okay, they, they say, okay, marriage is part of God's plan, like I said. Um, they'll say, read the family proclamation, the first paragraph, at, in terms of what is essential, right, for Heavenly Father's plan of salvation so salvific this is the first paragraph of the proclamation I'll, we'll put it in the show notes you should read the whole thing it's not that long um we just have more to get to <laughs> but um it says we the first presidency and the council of the 12 apostles of the church of jesus christ the latter-day saints solemn, solemnly proclaimed that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of god and that the family is central to the creator's plan for the eternal destiny of his children um, in the manual, they'll, they'll uh, go on to say, from the beginning, right? meaning marriage is meant to be eternal. This is the heading, right? It's meant to endure forever. It's one of the truths taught by the Savior. 
Um, they'll say, from the beginning means instituted by God at the creation of the world, which think about it from even all that we've covered in terms of the Mormon worldview, the Mormon theological network of beliefs. What do they mean by from the beginning? Mm-hmm. Don't they mean a beginning? When they say instituted by God, don't they mean reaffirmed, reinstituted? If this law is so is eternal and God became God in part, even salvifically, based on his marriage or polygamous marriages, if you think there's a heavenly mother and Mary, it's reinstituted. And then they say, by God, do they mean the gods at the creation of the world? Don't they mean at the organizing of this world? See the word games, but you'll still see it because they'll still say, even in this paragraph, right? That, and especially if you keep reading that, it's, this is about the eternal destiny of his children. They believe in the spirit birth of uh, all of God, everybody who that, that means all of God's children. They believe everybody was spirit born uh, by God and heavenly mother, which is why they'll say parents as well, by the way, in this thing. Um, in fact, that might even be worth reading uh, later on anyway. So this is, <laughs> this is weird. They do have a section where they say, what has the Lord taught about legalized same-sex marriage? And they quote, quote Russell Nelson, right? Where he says, the truth is, however, that in the beginning, in the beginning, Marriage was ordained by God, and to this day it is defined by him as between a man and a woman. God has not changed his definition of marriage. No shame. Does this sound like a consistent definition of marriage? Mm-hmm. Even, even in the wording of the document, right? I mean, a man and a woman, they don't, they're not even like self-conscious enough of their past to say only a man and a woman, which you want to really emphasize, right? If you had the past the LDS Church has. Um, to me, it's like God has not changed his definition of marriage. How many wives did Joseph Smith have? Yeah. How many wives does Nelson have? Yeah. The guy saying this. My opinion, he's doing the same thing and talks like this that Joseph Smith was. Yeah. Now we can say, well, maybe it's not as extreme or whatever, but it's it's my my point is a qualitative one in terms of the honesty and transparency yeah. when it comes to the theology. What is believed? What is true? What is revelation? What's your position? Yep. And instead, um, once again, I you know to politicize this thing in a way that to not even own your own history, I think says quite a bit. Now the, the, ne- sorry. the yeah. next as just the next to last paragraph in that statement. I don't know. Were you going to yeah. say anything else on the statement or? Yeah, Let's do it, I, it Let's just do says it. we warn. So this is getting into the warning. We warn that individuals who violate covenants of chastity, who abuse spouse or offspring, or who fail to fulfill family responsibilities will one day stand accountable before God. Further, we warn that the disintegration of the family will bring upon individuals, communities, and nations the calamities foretold by ancient and modern prophets. Right. Um, yeah, pr- pretty intense. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I just I guess the question that's lingering in my mind that gets at what you're getting at is if marriage is between a man and a woman, uh, to what extent is that an eternal binding covenant where to be sealed to 
you know, more than one woman or even mm-hmm. have sexual relations with more than one woman in this life is actually to violate the law of chastity mm-hmm. because you are sinning against your wife who is, you know, even if she's died before you, right. you know, you are, you are violating the chastity agreement, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if that's the, if that's the nature of the marriage, uh, there should be no remarriage in an LDS system, if it is going to be between a man and a woman and marriage really is eternal and you ought to be good to that law of chastity. That's not even to bring in all of the Joseph Smith problem. That's even to just think, think now about the implications of this. Um, yeah. You know, if marriage really is supposed to be this eternal thing, uh, then, then you are, I mean, you're committing adultery on mm-hmm. your spouse who's waiting an eternity for you if they've died before you and you got remarried in this life, right? Right. Unless a man and a woman is a legally carefully worded thing by which they can mean one man and a woman, meaning multiple. Yeah. That's that's why I'm pointing out the ambiguity of the language. Yep. Keep keep in mind, like the, the the key to lying is taking advantage of what you expect people to hear with what you say, mm-hmm. while carefully wording it in such a way that you can deny or have, you know, plausible deniability as to what you actually said. Think Bill Clinton. Yep. Of course, he wasn't doing it in the name of Jesus. I, right, I don't want to be right. too hard on yeah. Bill Clinton here. Uh, my point is that I think that's what's going on. Why don't they say this is? Revelation, maybe there's something going on there. The, to me, it's the the ambiguity, the weaponized ambiguity, is one of the most upsetting parts about this whole thing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just really quickly, it was the next sentence: All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. There's the heavenly mother, which, in my mind, is that's uh, polytheism. And notice this too, gender is an essential characteristic of individual pre-mortal, mortal, and eternal identity and purpose, which of course, uh, those on the left of the LDS spectrum are going to say, are going to lean into agency here and say, well, they should be able to choose their gender or whatever. But anyway, the point being is, it is a little disturbing to me how quickly a lot of evangelical groups and Roman Catholic groups have allied themselves with this institution given its history given the irony. And like I said, in, in the Hawaii's Future Today brief, yeah, they literally are arguing in support of the Reynolds case. Uh, there's no blush about it. Uh, now, Oakes wrote a memorandum, uh, to be clear, in which he noted the irony of defending Reynolds as a case. But yeah, I think it's still there. Um, I just have a little bit more on this lesson. Just to, this is where maybe it's a little even more important. Um, but under the heading... In the Sunday, uh, Sunday, uh, sorry, the seminary manual. What can I do now to help me find a good spouse when the time is right? Keep in mind the salvific language, the gospel language when it comes to marriage. This is Ted R. Callister, who's kind of like their, what, their fun apologist guy, the general authority. Um, I'm sure we'll have chances to deal with him going forward. He, this, they include this talk where he's talking about his mother. And she said, Tad, or Ted, sorry. Ted R. Callister, are you asking the Lord to help you find a good wife? I responded, no, to which she responded, well, you should, son. It will be the most important decision you will ever make. Does he say, wait, isn't choosing Christ the most important decision? (laughs) No, no, what does he say? These words sunk deep into my heart. So this is supposedly a good thing. 
Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not kidding. Like the, the, the gospel as the Bible teaches is not essential to them. Mm-hmm. And this is, and just to even how they talk about it, uh, even the divorce part, not even once again, they don't mention the eunuch part at all because it cuts against everything they believe. Right? Procreation is a godly thing. Yep. So what about Jesus saying, there's even those who make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, they have no category for that. Yep. And, and they admit it. David Ridges says, we don't know what they're talking about. Bruce R. McConkie says, we don't know what he's talking about. They basically say, well, we don't know what he's saying. Maybe you know, maybe it wasn't transmitted correctly. Maybe it's not translated correctly. I mean, the same excuses we always hear. It's like, whoa, um, Jesus can't be saying that marriage they, is not ultimate. Exactly. Because they, they the, no, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, listen to how Dallin Oaks even talks about divorce. Where another area where you think, oh, we we agree, but keep reading, keep listening. Dallin Oaks, April two thousand seven. The kind of marriage required for exaltation, eternal in duration. Even though Jesus said there was no marriage in heaven, let's not forget that we covered that in the marriage episode. Mm-hmm. Eternal in duration and godlike in quality does not contemplate divorce. But because of the hardness of our hearts, the Lord does not currently enforce the consequences of the celestial standard. He permits divorced persons to marry again without the stain of immorality specified in the higher law. And that's the thing, is they still have this higher, lower law talk. And my point is, I've heard that before, because most of your general authorities use that when it came to polygamy. Mm -hmm. It's a higher law. Yeah. And if we were righteous enough, so to speak, it would we would still be practicing it kind of a thing. Hmm. So there, there's a lot here. But I just, once again, so in all those details, the main point isn't missed. They will cite DNC 132 right above the family proclamation to the world. I, I mean, how how more duplicitous could you get? Yeah. You'd, yep. think, you, you'd think that's the furthest thing away from your mind if you're trying to emphasize monogamy. Yeah. But once again, I think there's people in the office, whoever approves this, the correlation committee, whatever, they're trying to throw red meat to their base. They're trying to throw something in so people are like, oh, they really know what's going on. Or throw it the other way for the, yeah. oh, well, wow. They got to kind of keep everybody satisfied. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I, I really think that's what's going on. Hmm. I, interesting. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that obviously differs very much from evangelical interpretation on yeah. marriage <laughs> yeah. and the way that we would deal with this passage. But, uh, you know, it's, a, it's just another example of how on the surface, right, mm-hmm. we may use the same sorts of words and the same sorts of descriptions. We would affirm marriage between a man and, an a, wo- and a woman uh, you know, even in one sense, we could say is an essential is is essential to God's eternal plan, but we wouldn't have the same understanding of, you know, what that eternal plan is. You know, we would obviously say marriage was essential to God's plan within the creation mandate. Yes, it's not good that man should be alone. Mm-hmm. Man and woman need to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with His glory, and of course, the purpose of marriage is. Uh, I mean, it's multifaceted, but one of the reasons is that they would rear children and fill the earth with image bearers of God who who would bring glory to him as yeah. as his image bearers. And, uh, of course, Jesus is clear that there is a place for, for a godly, uh, you know, 
for eunuchs yeah. for the kingdom. Celibate singleness. Right. And that's not to belittle the importance of marriage no, within within what God is doing either. Um, but you know, we're we're not gonna look at this passage and pull out all of that sort of stuff, right? But that's exactly what we see. It's never it's never enough. We see this again and again. It's never enough just for the Bible to speak and mm-hmm. and to deal with the Bible with what it says. Uh, it's always got to be inputting the doctrine that was very, very outside of the Christian worldview that was created by the leaders of the LDS church and inserting that onto, not not even inserting it into the text. It's almost just like flopping it on top of the text, right. trying to cover up the text, you know, mm-hmm. what its meaning actually is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there, uh, we, we would want to affirm marriage being between a man and, and a woman, but we By would, we would we actually mean, mean that very literally <laughs> one man. That's one, right. And, one, and notice the one man notice for, they say, this is this section and they, once again, they'll say a man, a woman, that ambiguity being, I think, deliberate. No, what does Jesus say? He uses the, the two shall become one. Now we'll, we'll focus on the one quite a bit, but it is interesting that keep in mind, Polygamy was a problem in Jewish culture in its history. But the ideal in Genesis 2 was one man, one woman. Yeah. The ideal in the construction of the temple, on the veil of the temple, one man, one woman. And um, the two would have been a correction against polygamy in its context. This isn't me. This is Gary Rensberg. He, he does a, um, he's, he's written quite a bit on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. And he points out that that's one insight we get into the New Testament when studying the Dead Sea Scroll debates is that they they would have agreed with Jesus here in emphasizing yeah. the two because they Jews would often say, well, yeah, a man, a woman, right? right. A man, and then however women, yeah. <laughs> many yeah. women. And so it's not just, don't just focus on the one, focus on the two. Yeah, here. yeah. That's really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, of course, we would look at this to try to discern uh, what what the nature of the relationship is whenever it comes to the permanence of it in right. this life mm-hmm. right uh, but we're not going to project that into eternity no. either because Jesus balances this with other teachings when of course he was asked uh, by the uh, the Sadducees I believe it was who you know try to put him to the test and ask him, you know, if, if a man is married and this wife dies who, and then he's married again and that wife dies and he's married again and it happens seven times, which one's he going to be married to in the next right. life? And Jesus says, you know, in, in, a, in heaven, we're not going to be married or given in marriage. Um, yeah. That's just not going to be a reality eternally. And Jesus spoke very clearly on that. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's just, man, an example of, of how awry uh, the LDS faith is when it comes to their understanding of marriage up against what Jesus himself taught. Yes. Right? Yes. And what even Christians have um, in our culture today have prioritized, which is part of my criticism. That's right. How many Roman Catholic priests and evangelical activists, whatever, even if on the issue politically, the result we want why are we prioritizing the things of this world mm. over the teachings of heaven? Like, why are we overlooking the fact that literally in the second paragraph of this document that they're willing to cite in a legal brief, it talks of a heavenly mother indirectly. Like, this is paganism. This yep. is, 
And why, you know, we just got to be careful. I know, like in our system, in our, you know, we, we can't be so perfectionist. We can never get along with anybody. That's not my point. Right. My point is, is on something like this, we should be, the details matter. And especially if Jesus has spoken to it, when he says there isn't marriage in heaven, right? The Bible teaches there is a beginning, therefore it's not eternal. This sure isn't part of the gospel. If circumcision isn't, this sure, sure isn't. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could go on and on, but... Yep. We have got to prioritize what Jesus taught as Christians. We cannot overlook that. Now, there's a time to work together with our neighbors. I'm not saying not, but I, I hope I'm making sense there. We just yeah. It's amazing to me that in doing the research for this, how little care, we were so focused on a political result, how little care was given to the actual salvific message of the Bible yeah. when it came to dealing with our LDS. friends and neighbors. And hopefully it's been helpful in just being able to see how slippery it is, Yeah, you know, and and even intentionally so, yeah, so that they can kind of like a chameleon uh, change colors whenever it's most Mm -hmm. advantageous to them uh, versus being very clear um, and, and, and being able to say historically, we've always been clear, right? Like, you know, to, to be able to, cling to something that is absolute, that is a standard, that uh, that is historic. You know, that's just something they don't have and almost don't want to have, you know, yeah. because it is advantageous in their minds mm-hmm. uh, to be able to say, well, there could be things that are going to be revealed in the future that we don't know yet, you know, and mm-hmm. things can change. And it is just, it's, it's curious, you know, where, it's curious to, to question where the LDS faith is going to end up. And all this, yeah, uh, because the younger generations out here in Salt Lake City are many of them are thoroughly progressive, mm-hmm. you know, thoroughly oh, yeah. on the sexual revolution yep. bandwagon, and no want to see the church uh, affirming gay marriage and and affirming you know the transgender movement and all these things. Um, I mean, we were even talking before the podcast about you you said it this way that you know in, in the month of june there is and there, i don't think this is an exaggeration there is more you know rainbow flags and things of that nature posted up over and around provo than there are christmas lights at christmas time yeah you know it, it is uh it is a strong and growing movement out here and it seems like it's more rare to find young people who are upholding what we would consider conservative political convictions versus progressive ones. And when you understand the whole system, well, what's what would keep them from wanting to push in a progressive direction? Because their doctrine can change. change. Yep. And so why not push for that? Why not want to see that occur if you're an LDS <laughs> person, right? Um, because yeah. because you, you want to be accepted by the world. Yeah. You know, you want to be popular. You want to be part of the popular movement, whatever direction that's yeah. going. And, uh, and you certainly don't want to be considered on the quote-unquote wrong side of history, mm-hmm. right? And that Gnostic orientation of the LDS worldview, that meaning the turn inward, the emphasis on agency, on personal revelation, leaves them ultimately defenseless to this. Yep. And the fact that the leaders will talk a tough game, and yet at the end of the day, remove even Packer saying it's revelation. You know what I'm talking about. Yep. This reminds me of even, this is not, this is no new even. Like Brigham Young, there are so many, Wilford Woodruff even prophesied, no, we will never give up polygamy. We will never give up polygamy until Jesus comes again, whatever. Yep. 
And even then they would say, keep, continue practicing it. And then they did. Then sure. they, until they don't. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, this is not a conservative religion. Yeah. And, and um, frankly, I don't think ultimately it will be a Republican state, which my, my point here is not to defend the Republican. The right, last thing, right. Frankly, that's the last thing I want to defend. My point is, is that people will look at it politically and think of it similarly, and they're wrong. Yeah, they're not. They're not right. They're not saying, "Oh, the Bible has spoken." Yep. You, you, how many LDS do you think, with those rainbow flags, if you showed them this from Jesus in Matthew, would change their mind? Yep. There's a well-known president of a seminary who came out and spoke at BYU and had this famous line. This and this was probably only, oh gosh, ten years ago. I mean, not that long ago, and he famously said to uh, a LDS audience, I don't think we're going to be in heaven together, but we may, but he didn't say I may, we may, I think he said, but we will be in jail together, <laughs> you know, and, and his whole talk was on this issue of defending marriage. Yeah. And uh, it just shows that, you know, he, he didn't have a full understanding of no, how LDS doctrine works and even probably some of the history of being loose with, uh, with the sexual ethic. And not being willing to stand long term yeah. when the pressure is hot enough, and uh, yeah, I mean that the pattern is is more bending than it is standing within uh, within the LDS faith. They they tend to be behind the curve a little bit, but yeah. they t- they tend to come around as right. well. So yeah, because I mean the leaders will be of the previous generation, right? So right. they're always one generation behind because there is so much gravity toward the top um, of the in terms of the leadership and at least uh, tacitly agreeing or sustaining at least publicly. Yeah. But it's, it, like I said, it's just a generation behind the next generation. I mean, this generation would be con- of leadership would be considered crazy uh, liberal relative to the earlier kinds. Yep. And then you, you just keep going back. Right. And uh, liberals not necessarily right. I think they're all liberal, but you know what I'm saying is relative to what was considered standard LDS theology. Yeah. Um, and it, we just don't, yeah, we, I think that the expressive individualism, the, the, the entire mood of our culture, the zeitgeist is, it, it is very similar to Mormonism. Like it, when I, when I see, uh, the political, um, left though, it's not just the left to be clear, but, I mean, how often do they sell their points with a sob story, a testimony? You know, I know a person, change my worldview. And then there's just this total, complete trust that their subjective feelings are true objectively. Yeah. I mean, our our culture's become Mormon. Yeah. (laughs) There you have it. (laughs) They were ahead of the game on that one. Okay. We are... Already out of time, but we <laughs> we can't too bad. we can't yeah let we we're, we're gonna jump over Matthew twenty and the labors in the vineyard. Let's just make some quick comments on the rich young ruler because this is just another one of those examples of getting the point exactly wrong whenever yeah. it comes to the meaning of the text. So the rich young ruler. Let me just I mean l- let's do take the time just to read this because okay. it's so clear yeah. in the reading of it. This is Matthew nineteen verses sixteen and following. And behold, a man came to him that being Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What do you ask? 
why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Okay, that's the one line that the LDS church wants to focus on in yep. their curriculum. What What the young man asked, yeah. what, what do I still lack? I've done, I'm doing all these things. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And, of course, that's where they cut you off, right? You're not allowed to read further than that. Um, Maybe they cover it in the seminary manual or somewhere else, to be fair. But they do cut you off right there. And And they say, okay, the Savior, he will guide us closer to him as we ask him for help. So here's how they're twisting this story. They are seeing the the rich young ruler to be sincere. They're seeing him to be, I think, a true believer mm-hmm. who is coming to Jesus looking for help. And so the help that he gives, of course, is Jesus says, well, here is what you lack. So the help Jesus gives is to fill in where the young man is still not perfect the way that he's supposed to be perfect. So the way that they interpret this story is basically to say this rich young man was sincere, came to Jesus, asked what he lacked. He thought that he had been obedient to the law. Turned out he had not been as perfect as you should be yet. So here's the thing you need to go do, do in order to be more perfect. And that thing was to sell all that, he, all that he had, and then he'd be good to go. So, um, yeah, that's the that's the meaning that's given by the yeah. LDS faith. Jesus yeah. will help you know where you're lacking. Yeah, and they'll say, "Are you willing to ask and obey?" Yeah, and like they'll literally say, it, "This is customized counsel from God." Yep, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Jesus, right after telling this, said to his disciples, "Let's we're, let's read on. Let's do our reading on." Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? That's a key insight. The the disciples are saying, This seems impossible. Like, who can be saved if it's this hard? Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is is impossible. Mm-hmm. You can't save yourself. Right. Okay. Does that have something to do with what he's trying to say to the rich young ruler? Mm-hmm. It has everything to do with what he's trying to say to the rich young ruler. He says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Okay, we'll stop there. He goes on and has some more good conversation with his disciples uh, after that. But that is a key to interpreting the passage. Jesus says, this man comes to him and says, what good deed do I need to do in order to, internal, to inherit eternal life? Focus on Matthew here. I know that there's some differences between Matthew and Mark, but I, but I would want to point out specifically here in Matthew, he says, teacher, what good deed must I do in order to inherit eternal life? There was a belief, you know, at this point in time, I don't know if RT France comments on this, but uh, Chamberlain comments on it a little bit, but there was some, some belief amongst the religious people that there, there, there could be a particular good deed that you could do that once doing that good deed, it almost guaranteed that you're going to gain eternal life. Um, And so a lot of people this time believed 
that there actually was some extra work even beyond the law and normal obedience to the law that you could do and get almost like extra credit, you know, like it's going to guarantee that you're, you're going to pat not only pass a class, but like, you know, you're, mm-hmm. you're the a, stu- a plus student. Right. Mm-hmm. And so this person would have been a self-righteous person who thought himself righteous already and was just looking after the one extra deed that he was going to be able to do. And so notice how Jesus responds to him looking for the good deed that he wants to do. Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? And then he says, there is only one who is good. And that one, of course, if you go look at Mark, it articulates it a little differently. And he says, only God is good. Yes. Right. And so who is the only one who does the good deed? You know, who can do the good that is required to inherit eternal life. The The point is only God is good, mm-hmm. and only Jesus who is God is good. And I'm not saying that this necessarily has to do directly with Christology, but the point I think Jesus is trying to make to this rich young ruler is you can't do it on your own. Mm-hmm. And he does that all the time, does he not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I It's interesting in this uh, um, in the Sunday School Manual, they quote Bruce R. McConkie. Yeah. So I mean, of course, you know, I made that comment last time. Um, maybe the anti-McConkie faction had the week off when they did this manual, uh, whenever they did it. Um, but they listen to how Broussard frames this. This is so telling. Um, he says, as a young man, this is in a talk um, called Obedience, Consecration, and Sacrifice, April 1975. It is just like quintessential Broussard. Uh, he says, as a young man serving at the direction of my bishop, I called upon a rich man and invited him to contribute $1,000 to a building fund. He declined, but he did say he wanted to help. And if uh, we would have a ward dinner and charge $5 per plate, he, uh, he would take uh, two tickets. About 10 days later, this man died unexpectedly of a heart attack, and I have wondered ever since about the fate of his eternal soul. Mm. Wow. Talk about some fear tactics from Bruce R. Um, then he says... As you know, the young man went away sorrowful, referring to this passage, right? And we are left to wonder what intimacies he might have shared with the Son of God, what fellowship he might have enjoyed with the apostles, what revelations and visions he might have received if he had been able to live the law of a celestial kingdom. As it is, he remains nameless, as it might have been his name could have been had in honorable remembrance among the saints forever. See that mentality? That mentality... uh, I mean, literally the opposite of what the passage is teaching, right? Yep. Um, for them, they're saying, oh, yeah, Jesus gives us to-do lists, and this guy should have done it. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and the point is, it's impossible with man. Yeah. But with God, it's possible. Only God can save. Only God is good. You need a goodness that's outside of yourself, and that goodness was Jesus himself who came to be the righteousness that was required exactly. by the law for mm-hmm. his people yep. so that your salvation would be in him and not in yourself and in your own performance. And so Jesus Jesus consistently tries to turn these self-righteous people, he tries to turn the law and the requirements on him. Je- Jesus, Jesus is one who realizes this is an issue of the heart. Mm-hmm. And so he's always penetrating the heart of people uh, by trying to, if they're self-righteous, stack up an impossible standard on them to try to break them of their self-righteousness so that they would look to him and trust in him and realize that it is all a gift of grace. It is all of God and his his choice to be gracious. And it's by no 
accident that the next passage is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes on to show through that parable that the reward was not on the basis of how much works somebody had done, right? He's trying to show it's, it's not based on whether or not you've checked the list on everything because the parable of the vineyard, if if you're forgetting uh, again, is the parable where some people were hired at 6 a.m., worked all day, and they got paid the same amount as the people who got, you know, uh, hired one hour before it was over. Boy, does that not fly in the face of the idea of eternal progression, yeah. right? Um, it's not on the basis of how much work you've done. It's on the basis of the generosity of, of the, the of the or sorry or of the, the person hiring, yeah, right, mm-hmm. of the the manager, the lord, the mm-hmm. master of the house. Um, so please just see what the Bible is saying. I mean, just yeah. simply see what the Bible is saying. Um, you know, if you're, you're an LDS listener, please just reckon with what the text actually says. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. It's about God's graciousness. It's about his loving kindness. And, uh, boy, how you may have something else to say here, but how ironic that they do say in the last section here after saying, what do you lack? What do you lack? What do you lack? What do you lack? That they try to turn you around on this last section and say, this is covering Luke 18, which of course is the self-righteous Pharisee uh, versus the tax collector. And and the subtitles, we should trust God's mercy, not our own righteousness. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Like if I'm supposed to be asking, what do I lack? What do I lack? What do I lack? Is that not trying to trust in my own righteousness? Exactly. I mean, exactly. It's just this, you know, again, this word game of trying to keep your soul in this constant tension. Yep. Um, where you, you feel like you're being torn in two directions constantly, right? Yep. Yeah, and the, the, the workers in the vineyard, the way they spin it is that it doesn't take everybody the same amount of time to progress equally. Yeah. You know, instead of making like, like those people who were yeah those people who were hired the last hour yeah they were just beast mode right exactly. they yeah, exactly. they they accomplished the same amount of work in an hour exactly so, that's ex- yeah. that's it yeah and, then, and, and, then, and that just misses the heart of the whole thing because it mm-hmm. is about I mean how, how do you have that interpretation when the the people get upset over getting paid the same yeah. and the response of the master of the house is uh, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. It's not on the basis of uh, w- no, they did as much work as you did. Yep. No, the master of the house saying I'm the one who's choosing to give this last worker the same. Am I not allowed to to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or do you begrudge my generosity? So you yeah. see, the whole idea is I'm being generous, and I'll be generous to whom I'm yeah. going to be generous. They're using their notion of justice as a weapon to limit God's generosity. Yeah. Well, I, I've obeyed longer. I've done more. Yep. That's it, that's not the point. Yep. They did what I asked. Yep. That's right. And, and um, it, I mean, the whole point, like if you think of the dinar, right, the the daily wage of a day laborer. If how are you supposed to split it up? Interestingly enough, there was a way to split this up into 12. 12 pondian was how you would split up a dinar. But the whole point is, you know, you don't receive half part of God's love. Mm-hmm. You know, half of a bridge doesn't get you over the river. And this is about God's extravagant generosity. That's right. There was a rabbinic parable. I wish we had more time for this, but there was a rabbinic parable that very similar, whether it predated Jesus and Jesus is using it or its response, it's debated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a really good book um, called They Also Taught in Parables, about rabbinic parables. But 
they use one on the exceptional laborer. And it basically ends with, well, yeah, the Gentiles this, but Israel, you, you know, you've done more. So I'm going to reward you. Don't you worry. Right. And so it was all about reward being proportional to performance. Yep. And I just wonder, uh, you know, if I read that to an LDS person, if they would agree with it more than what Jesus actually taught. Yep. And always, I mean, when we bring up the thief on the cross, right, that's, yes. that tends to always rub LDS people Absolutely. wrong. Uh, but I think that that very discomfort that comes when the thief on the cross is mentioned ought to expose the self-righteousness that is in a person, the very self-righteousness that ought to make you say, well, you know, the curriculum here says we should trust God's mercy, not our own righteousness. Well, you are trusting in your own righteousness if it upsets you that God is choosing to be generous to the thief on the cross yep. in the same way that he's choosing to be generous to you. I, I have been a Christian uh, now for, oh goodness, how old am I? Almost 20 years I've been a Christian, for almost 20 years now. Um, I genuinely can say, because, because I realized that I am only saved because of God's generosity towards me. It's not because of anything good in me. I can genuinely say I look forward to rejoicing in heaven with my brother who was the thief on the cross Yes. without thinking that I've done anything better than him just because I've been following the Lord for 20 years in this life. Right. Um, just because maybe I've progressed further in sanctification than he was able to before. That doesn't make me better than him. It's all a gift. It's all God's generosity. It's all grace. It's nothing that I get to lay uh, claim to. And that's the point that's being made here. That's what the kingdom of God is. Yes, because you mentioned that, I cannot I cannot but say this. Yeah. This is David Ridge's commentary on this parable. I, I'm going to skip around, but uh, in verse 2, he says, that's full pay for a righteous mortal life. He says the dinar is symbolic of exaltation. Once again, this is the Institute guy who's wrote written the commentary that if you go to Deseret Book, a church-owned bookstore, they're going to be pu pushing for this year. Yeah. Um, in verse 4, go ye also into the vineyard. Join the church. Get active. Go to work. Verse 9, those who become faithful saints much later in life. But remember, faithful saints, not deathbed repentance. Yeah. We're given exaltation. He goes out of his way to say that. Yep. Let's be clear. You can't do it on your deathbed. <laughs> yep. Whereas, I mean, you know, they'll, they'll, I've even heard LDS people mock, well, you think Constantine was just, you know, baptized. If he believed on his deathbed, yeah. good for him. Yeah. I mean, who, who, what standard are we holding God to? Yep. Yep. He's the one who saves. He's the one who earned our salvation right. on the cross. Yep. It's his to give. Yep. It's not ours. And and it just shows. To earn. <laughs> it just shows a, a serious lack of humility. Oh, yeah. Um, a lack of humility that exists in somebody who is the self-righteous Pharisee who wants to look at the tax collector and sneer. Exactly. I mean, yeah. they don't even cover any of that. You know, that's that's why, I mean, forgive us, LDS listeners, if we don't trust this line, we should trust God's mercy, not our own righteousness. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, what what else in this manual would lead, lead us to believe that? What else in this lesson would lead us to believe that? So the rich young ruler, it's a to-do list he should have done. The laborers should have, you know, it's all about... Um, you know, how much time you take. We shouldn't be jealous of somebody who can progress faster than we do. And then marriage is essential to the gospel. So once again, what we do, what we do, we do, we do, we do, we do, we do. Why? Because that's what God has done. So once again, Jesus is at best an example, yep. not a savior. Jesus isn't a savior yep. for them. Now in this Luke 18, right? Who goes away justified? 
It's the guy who doesn't, obviously doesn't deserve yep. it. Of course, neither of them actually deserve it. But it's the one, I mean, and notice, is it the, the Pharisee is not Pelagian. In other words, it's not just pure works righteousness. Mm-hmm. He thanks God he's not like other men. Yeah. There's grace there. Yeah. Thank you, God, I'm not like other men. Yep. But I, I tithe, I, you know, go to church, I do all these things. I do, I do, I do, I exactly. do. Yep. And who went away justified? And this is the last thing I wanted to say. Just because they quoted Bruce R., they even included a nice picture. I got out a copy of Mormon Doctrine. I'm like, wow, it's been a while since I I've know. engaged with... But it's, I got to take advantage of this just because they actually quoted him. But what does justification mean? Well, David Ridges justified in Luke 8... Uh, sorry, Luke 18, 14. This is what Ridges says, in harmony with God. Mm. Not saved. <laughs> I mean... I mean not reconciled, no, in harmony with. Well, that's not too far away from Broussard's uh, definition of justification. Yeah. Um, which, once again, I know we can't ever quote him ever again, but we're going to because they did. Um, he says this under justification. He calls it compliance with this basic doctrine of the gospel, the law of justification, is thus essential to salvation. Okay, it's essential to salvation. How so? Indeed, one of the great religious contentions among the squabbling sects of an apostate Christendom is whether men are justified by faith alone without works, as some erroneously suppose Paul taught, or whether they are justified by works of righteousness, as James explained. Wow, someday we're going to have to take that on, the Paul-James stuff. Oh, yeah. Now, here he goes By on. the way, yes. so... Yes, we were talking about, you know, just how creepy AI is. I think I told you this, but I decided, hey, let's have a conversation with AI. So I started having this <laughs> oh, conversation no. of of uh, whether or not uh, I asked, like, is the LDS view of justification uh, in alignment with the teaching of the New Testament? It was like, no, it is not. The New Testament teaches this. And then I was like, I was like, uh you know, does does Paul disagree with James on justification? And it was like, no, Paul does not disagree with James on justification because yeah. James was talking about this. Blah, 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 and Paul, and I was like, hey, it's right. Wow, you know, yeah. well done. So apparently, when you take all of the information that is available <laughs> to be read and you synthesize all of it so that you can get to the most accurate uh. understanding of things. We've got the right position. Yeah, wow. Woo! And so AI, before it takes over the world, agrees with us on that's justification. Right. That's, that's good. That's the that's last nice. good news. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what then is the law of justification? Bruce R. McConkie. It is simply this. He cites DNC 132, which is another reason why I thought it was so fitting. He cites DNC 132. All covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oath, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations in which man must abide to be saved and exalted, must be entered into and performed in righteousness so that the Holy Spirit can justify the candidate for salvation in what has been done. Mm -hmm. An act that is justified by the Spirit is one that is sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, in other words, ratified or approved by the Holy Ghost, The law of justification is the provision the Lord has placed in the gospel to assure that no unrighteous performance will be binding on earth and in heaven, and that no person will add to his position or glory in the hereafter by stealing an unearned blessing. I'm going to wrap this up just by reading the text again. Please. Matthew 19, last part of verse 25, the disciples asked Jesus, Who then can be saved? 
Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for Matthew 21, 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John 12. Wow. Woo.